Welcome to Policy Today, thoughtful discussion of current issues vital to the future prosperity of Washington State, produced by the Washington Research Council. Hi, welcome to another episode of Policy Today. This is Mary Strau. I'm with the Washington Research Council. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Emily Makings and Chris Showbloom. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about a new special report written by Emily on Initiative 1433, which is uh, a statewide initiative that will be appearing on the November ballot, this November's election. Um, it deals with uh, increasing the minimum wage and mandating paid sick leave. Um, and the title of our special report, which kind of says it all, is I-1433, a blunt instrument increasing the minimum wage and mandating pay, paid sick leave. Um, and you will learn throughout this discussion why we're referring to it as a blunt instrument, um, because it um, doesn't have any exemptions. Um, it applies equally to all parts of the state, regardless of their local unemployment rate or um, maybe fi uh, economic distress. Um, it applies equally to booming downtown Seattle as it would to other parts of central eastern Washington. Um, so, Emily, oh, and before we get started, I wanted to let our, um, our listeners know that we are on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and tune in. So, in addition to listening to us on SoundCloud, on our website, you can also go to those apps and listen to us there. All right. So, Emily, let's start off um, with you and a description of what this initiative, what Initiative 1433 does. So, as you mentioned, it increases the minimum wage statewide, and it also requires all employers to provide uh, paid sick leave to their employers. So, the minimum wage um, would increase next year to $11 per hour, and then it would increase to eleven fifty in 2018, to $12 in 2019, and to thirteen fifty in 2020. And then after that, it would be indexed to inflation like it has been since, um, you know, as it is currently. And so that would be the, the state, so the state minimum wage would be thirteen fifty in 2020, but it does not preempt local jurisdictions from enacting higher minimum wages. So in um, 2020, Seattle's minimum wage would be much higher for large companies than the state minimum wage. Um, but Tacoma also has, has enacted its own minimum wage, and it would be actually lower than the state minimum wage under 1433. Oh, interesting. So so there's um, so while it's true this is a statewide this would be a statewide uh, minimum it's not the statewide maximum. Gotcha. So if other uh, localities were to say pass a minimum wage that was uh, lower than this a minimum wage increase that locality's uh, law would have uh, would hold sway over the state law. Uh, right, they could. Okay, you know, sky's the limit, really. Gotcha, but but it could be lower. Like, say, some smaller town said, "Well, wait a minute, we're only going to do twelve fifty. No. Oh, so no. it couldn't it couldn't be lower than thirteen fifty. No. The, the fourteen thirty three would be the minimum. Oh, is the minimum? Okay, gotcha. Understand. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Um, and so that I mean, the minimum wage is pretty straightforward for Washington voters. We've 
we've um, had a minimum wage that's been indexed and higher than many other states for for many years now. But the paid sick leave mandate is much um, is much newer for Washington voters. I think mm-hmm. there. Um, Seattle has mandates paid sick leave, as does Tacoma, and Spokane has also enacted a a sick leave policy. Um, But under the 1433 initiative, um, employees would accrue one hour of paid sick leave for every 40 hours they work. And there would be no, um, no limit as to how many hours they could take in a year. And employers would have to allow employees to carry over 40 hours into the next year if they haven't used it. Mm -hmm. So it's very, um, so potentially if um, they could use, an employee could use 92 hours of paid sick leave in the second year of the initiative. Wow. If they, so it's, it's, uh, it's pretty broad and, um, and definitely very new for Washington. Yeah, and, you know, that may be one thing, sort of par for the course um, for larger companies. But if you're talking about, this would apply to all companies, right? So yeah. say you're a little mom and pop organization with like, I don't know, five or ten employees. Yeah. This will apply to you. Yes. And that's, you know, for a small business, um, really on the margins and just, you know, trying to make ends meet, as the saying goes, it, it could be quite a burden. Yeah. And there's no, um, you know, one of the reasons we're calling this, uh, to borrow a quote from, from the, the head of the AWB, the state's chamber of commerce, a blunt instrument is because <laughs> there are no exemptions. You, you know, Boeing is treated the same way as the bagel shop down the street. Right. Okay. Um, one thing that really struck me um, in the report speaking uh, specifically about the minimum wage is the contrast with um, New York State and California, who, you know, both of those are pretty, uh, pretty liberal states. But it seems to me that, um, you know, their minimum wage laws are are more, um, I guess you'd say, intelligent. Sorry, but that's a judgmental word. But, um, you know, you say in your report, California and New York enacted legislation this year to increase their minimum wages to $15 over time. Unlike I-1433, these are not blanket increases. Instead, legislators in California and New York appear to have been cognizant of the potentially negative impacts on jobs and businesses. Thus, they incorporated several safeguards. Could you talk a little bit about that, Emily? So, um, Washington, I mean, Washington has been the number one, had the, the highest minimum wage in the nation for years mm-hmm. until this year. And several um, several states have recently been enacting higher minimum wages. And California and New York are two of them who mm-hmm. have increased um, theirs in interesting ways. California's will go up to 15 in, 22, in 2022 and 2020, and 2023, excuse me, yeah. depending on how big the firm is. So they... Right. They differentiate between big big guys and little guys. Right. And they have a safeguard in place so that the governor can um, suspend the increases if the economy can't support them. Exactly. So if you have, you know, God forbid, another great recession or even a little mini recession um, and, 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 and firms are losing business, they can, uh, you know, losing money, it right. can be suspended. Okay, gotcha. 
And then New York is similar. It um, it goes to $15 also, but depending on where in the state a business is located. So New York City will see wages go to $15 in 2019 and 2020, depending on firm size again. And then wages in the New York City suburbs get there a year later, and then wages in the rest of the state get there even later on. Yeah. And, and they also have a safety valve in place for economic. Right. So there again, you have taking into account um, not only the firm size, but what part of the state, because obviously um, Manhattan and the other boroughs are not representative of all of the rest of the state. Right. Just like, you know, here, Seattle, the sort of Puget Sound area, Seattle um, and suburbs are not uh, representative of, say, r- more rural Western Washington, Olympic Peninsula, or Central Washington or Eastern Washington. Uh, so that's a much more, those are two much more nuanced minimum wage increases that um, have characteristics that are not present in Initiative 1433, where it's just a blanket, regardless of where you are in the state or what size your your company is. Um, And another interesting thing to note, you note that um, uh, minimum wage First of all, by sector, this this makes sense. You know, minimum wage jobs are concentrated in accommodation and food services, retail, trade, and agriculture. But mm-hmm. geographically, these jobs are concentrated in counties in central Washington, um, which is interesting. And it, it leads you to wonder, you know, how are these counties going to absorb um, the, the businesses in these counties how are they going, the employers, how are they going to absorb the costs of this increase when there's no exemption, no um, recognition in this initiative of, you know, different economic situations? Right. And the, and the fact is, I mean, in June, the unemployment rate in King County was 4.3%, but mm-hmm. in, for example, in Ferry County, it was 9.8%. So there's right. a high disparity across the state and um, in the econ- state economy and and yes, the jobs are concentrated in Eastern Washington, so it's um, that's where the brunt of this would fall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's going to be, um, you know, I mean, that could, the the repercussions could be wide ranging because you're always, you know, you're hearing about the you know counties again, not King County, but the other counties who are struggling to always have adequate revenue, and if you have a situation where you know, employers just can't afford this. And then you have, maybe they go out of business, maybe they move somewhere else. Um, maybe they just don't hire as many people. Um, it could, it could have a ripple effect. It seems to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and we'll come back and t- and talk more broadly about this, but then, um, um, uh, focusing specifically on the paid sick leave, um, you provide some examples in your report of um, other localities in this state that that have enacted paid sick leave laws, and um, also Oregon. Um, Oregon has a law uh, that was passed what in 2015, or came in, or came into effect in 2016. Um, Oh, yeah, five states. So, Connecticut, California, Massachusetts, Oregon, and Vermont um, also have paid sick leave laws. But it seems like a lot of those 
provide some nuance as well? Um, well, so first of all, I mean, paid sick leave is a much mandated paid sick leave is a much newer phenomenon yes. than minimum wage. So there's not a lot of information really about how right. this is affecting economies. Um, Connecticut right. was the first state to do it in 2012. And then um, California, Massachusetts in 2015, Oregon um, in the beginning of this year, and then Vermont will be effective next year. Okay. And, um, but I mean, they all, I didn't look really closely at all of them, but Oregon's law exempts independent contractors, um, work training participants, work study participants, railroad, railroad workers, and um, people who are employed by their family members. Sure. So um, there are exemptions, and then even there were even more exemptions in the city laws that have been enacted in Washington. Mm -hmm. Seattle has a paid sick leave law that was effective in 2012. SeaTac has one from 2014, which only applies to um, the hospitality and airport workers, basically. Mm -hmm. Tacoma is, um, is effective this year, and Spokane's will be effective next year. But they all have... Um, exemptions. Um, all three, Seattle, Tacoma, and Spokane, all exempt work-study students. Tacoma and Spokane exempt independent contractors, and Spokane exempts seasonal and construction workers. Right. And they all specify the number of uh, hours of leave that may be used in a year, unlike 1433. So that kind of um, maybe limits the impacts a little bit. Yeah, and when I see all of these um, other, whether they're a state or whether they're localities who have um, made provisions for exemptions. You know, I'm thinking, okay, there's a reason they did this. And if, if this I-1433 were to be enacted, um, it, it, it stands to reason that that people in these positions, hospitality, transportation, oh no, I'm sorry, um, you know, work-study students, um, independent contractors, seasonal construction workers, their jobs could be, if this, if 1433 were enacted, um, could be endangered because it, it, it seems as though if those were exempted in the previous laws and they're not here, um, that could be a big problem for those people, well, I mean, potentially, it's potentially basically yeah. as a benefit that's part of the compensation mix, just like wages are. And so, if you change, I mean, an employer might uh, an employee might be worth a certain amount um, of wages and benefits to the employer. It might be worth hiring that person, but if you add benefits on top of that, then you might price that employee out of the market, and the employee may not even really care about paid sick leave. The employee might prefer to have I don't know, scholarship benefits or more job flexibility or just right. wages instead of the paid sick leave. But the the mandates require the paid sick leave to be offered. So um, the employee is kind of stuck with a less opt potentially a less optimal um, mix of compensation. Yeah, and if you're talking about a you know work study kid or a kid who's um either just working, trying to find a summer job, high school or, or college kid, or um, um, maybe taking some time off to help pay for their education, higher education. You know, what are the chances of, <laughs> of them be being able to find a job if not only you have the minimum wage, 
but then you have um, this added cost, particularly if it's a kid outside of the booming Seattle area where the economy isn't so great and the unemployment rate isn't so low. Uh, yeah, it would make it make it more expensive to hire them, certainly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, as you noted, uh, you know, this paid sick leave notion is very new. And, um, and um, so, obviously, not a lot of, not tons of, of data on it. Um, but it is, you know, worth noting, again, just stressing again, the how extensive this particular law is, you know, one hour of paid sick leave for every 40 hours worked, no limit on the number of hours of leave that could be used in a year. Another thing that I found interesting is that if a if an employee is, say, whatever, laid off or leaves that particular job with that particular company, but comes back within a year, uh, the hours that he or she had accrued before uh, remain. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then let's talk, before we open up the discussion more broadly, um, you have a really interesting section on the economic impacts of wage and benefit <laughs> mandates. Um, so you kind of go through the the research that we have on uh, minimum wage increases, um, and again, as we were saying earlier, there's limited, as you say, limited economic literature on paid sick leave. But why don't we go over that um, uh, quickly, just because you know facts and data are are important. Certainly sounds great. You know when you say this, you're like, oh yeah, let's increase the minimum wage for everybody and give paid sick leave. But there are uh, consequences. Um, right. The economic literature on um, increasing the minimum wage kind of has four. I would say four broad themes. There's um, studies find reduced employment either via layoffs or hours are just reduced. There are fewer jobs created. Um, there's mm -hmm. no net poverty reduction because minimum wages aren't means tested. And you see declines in economic mobility um, because it's harder to get that first job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, great. Um, well, let's open it up. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? You're our, you are our economist in residence. Yeah, um, well, I, I just would emphasize um, one thing that's coming out of the um, economists who've studied uh, minimum wages uh, is that uh, n nearly all of the research we've seen, empirical research on past increases in minimum wages, have, have dealt with increases that are to levels that are significantly below uh, the level contemplated in this initi initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the um, 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 those em empirical studies are of limited usefulness in predicting um, um, how much the uh, um, this increase in the minimum wage will will affect uh, employment, uh, particularly when we take a look at the uh, um, areas outside of metropolitan Seattle, um, where wage levels are quite high. Mm -hmm. um, this increase is in a, will um, significantly raise wages in in a number of our more rural counties, uh, and that's where we would expect to see the the, the really negative effects. Yeah, you know it, uh, it 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 makes me wonder why. Um, I guess maybe we'll see. Maybe perhaps we could get someone who's 
who supports the initiative on why uh, there are no um, exemption, either exemptions or sort of uh, m more relaxed mandates for areas of the state that are not economically booming, like the Seattle area. Uh, I wonder if that was just more difficult for them to write it that way, um, or if they it didn't even occur to them, or if maybe, maybe if they assume maybe they assume that there will be a challenge or that lawmakers will work it out later. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm sure they believe that um, raising the wages of um, workers is a good thing. Yeah, which I think we would agree with if it's. Um, I mean, if it is good to have higher wages, everybody absolutely, yeah. But and I think that they would say that it. I mean, it's good for everybody, no matter where you live. Right. But the they're not taking into account um, the potentially negative consequences. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just economic illiteracy, which is you know you can't discount these days. Right, Chris? I mean, yes, not, yeah, unfortunately, I not everybody kind of understands, like, oh, that sounds so great. It's kind of like the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign. No offense to, um, we love anyone who listen, who was a Bernie Sanders supporter. But, oh, free college, free this, free that, and we'll just, you know, get the money from breaking up the banks. But that doesn't work that way, right? So, you know, something sounds good, but you're not taking into account all the you know, actual human beings and human behavior and behavior of markets and what the con economic consequences are. Yeah. Yeah, some people just... Oh, you've got a dog, too. <laughs> I've got my dog outside my door uh, scratching, uh, just dying to get in. Wasn't my dog you were hearing. Uh, oh, was that, was that <laughs> at yours, Emily? Yeah, sorry, I'm muting. Oh, that's all right. Okay, go ahead, Chris. Okay. So, um, um, I think that, that a number of, of the folks who support this um, just don't believe that there's any um, employment effect. They th see employers as being rich fat cats who can mm -hmm. simply afford to pay what, uh, what the higher level of wages would be. Um, just yeah. don't appreciate the, the way the economy works. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it's just, it's so astonishing that you cannot make a distinction between, um, you know, some vibrant, uh, some, you know, tech firm in, you know, Seattle or Bellevue or Redmond, where maybe the average wage is like $100,000 an hour, and some person in, you know, Wenatchee who runs a small retail store. Um, it's, it's astounding to me that even if you are, you know, firmly committed to, you know, social justice and high wages that you could not see the difference between those two and, and, and be accommodating to those differences. And of course, a, you know, lower cost of living and people maybe not needing as high a wage as they would need to survive in, you know, in this greater Seattle area. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, it just it's um it's a it's a real it's a real puzzle. Um, another thing that was that was a really fascinating part, and again, the dealing with just actual facts and numbers, um, and this is in the portion of the report on the economic impacts of wage and benefit mandates. Emily writes. Um, 
this is on page starting on page six and going to page seven, even economists who support increasing the minimum wage warn against increasing it by too much or else, quote, risk undesirable and unintended consequences. Um, one economist has suggested tying the minimum wage to half the local median wage. Um, and then the New York Times has written that the, quote, the rough consensus among economists who are sympathetic to minimum wage increases is that if the ratio of the minimum wage to medium wage is below 50%, it is mostly beneficial. 50 to 60% may create difficulties. 60 to 70% would create serious concerns. And above 70% is potentially disruptive. Um, so... You know, again, even the economists who are supporting a minimum wage increase are recognizing that you, you need to be more realistic and more, um, more adaptable and accommodating of, of, of differences. Is that what you, have you, yeah. does that sound about right, Chris? Yeah, it does. Uh, I think this is a, a point I was trying, uh, attempting to make earlier. Um, you know, I probably just to, didn't yeah. understand it because I'm, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I, I econom- I'm a liberal artist yeah. teacher. <laughs> Um, yeah, right and it, what's interesting is that, that we really have um, a, a problem in this state between the 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 real, the, um, the, the, the major urban area where uh, the economy is going gangbusters yes. and 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 wages and salaries are are quite high, uh, and the rest of the state. Uh, we often talk about this as being the two um, the, the two Washingtons problem, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and you know. The negative effects of this are primarily going to be felt in, in, uh, in the, not in the, the Seattle part of Washington, but mm-hmm. the other part. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it'll, I mean, sort of in an ironic way, it'll be increasing <laughs> the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. N- not, I'm not referring to all of, you know, non-Seattle Washingtons have nots, but they certainly, yeah. have, you know, there are, certainly tend to be higher, um, higher unemployment. And just, you know, the cost of living is lower too. So yeah. it's, you know, as we're talking, I'm thinking, you know, so here it's definitely a problem, you know, in uh, the greater Seattle era, you've got, you know, as we've noted before, we've been doing blog posts on this about the, um, increasing cost of housing i mean it's just through the roof you know if you're trying to if you're you know working anywhere in the greater seattle area and you're not making a huge salary um and you're trying to find affordable housing i mean forget it the cost of you know apartments even these little micro uh apartments are are super super expensive so you know you do have a problem there with the gap between um the people who are making all this money and benefiting from the um, the robust economy there, who can afford whatever thousand uh, dollars rent or can afford a million dollar house, and those who are more modest or on the lower income side who just can't, like they literally can't find a place anywhere, and then they've got to you know live way far out and either drive or take the bus, whatever. So that's that's one problem. Um, but it's a complete. It's really quite a different situation in other parts of the state. Not to beat this horse, but I think it's important for us to to to, to discuss this because, um, again, it's the whole point of the the headline of it being of this being a blunt instrument. 
Yeah, and and in those um, those dense urban areas, um, you know, even without a minimum wage, the employers are forced to pay higher wages because otherwise um, workers just can't live close enough in order to in order to take a job. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they just they wouldn't be able to find, they wouldn't be able to find anybody, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's we'll. Take, we've talked a bit about um, about how you know reducing poverty. It actually, the literature says, it's not exactly these these two um, mandates. If you're looking to reduce poverty, actually, minimum wage increase and paid sick leave and these these labor mandates aren't really the way to do it. Um, l- let's touch briefly. Emily, are you there? Yes. Okay. Great. Um, the business response to labor mandates, um, you know, making it, this is on page nine, there's, we have a, you have a section on business response to labor mandates, making it more expensive to hire workers. Um, could you uh, talk about that, the increased labor costs and what um, we could expect if, if I-1433 were enacted, what the response of the employers would be? Well, many businesses just would not be able to absorb such high wage increases. Mm-hmm. Um, they could lay off workers. They could reduce hours. They could um, just, I mean, looking forward, they just might not create jobs in the future. Right. And um, they could also increase prices or they could pick up and move. And that would be an extreme example probably, but it could happen. And uh, you may see an increase in automation, right? If yeah. They're, if, if they're able to. Yeah, if the price of labor increases, then the costs of um, automation look look a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah. It's much more attractive. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you're seeing um, a lot of automation already in mm-hmm. different um, sectors, so I, I don't think it's out of the question at all. Right. In fact, I was just talking to someone today who had um, been at a hotel it wasn't a super fancy hotel um and it's much more automated now like they don't have uh people at the front desk you go in and you check in um at a like a kiosk sort of like they have the option at the airport where you can check in uh and so i imagine you could see more of that and then that means you know obviously less people working and you know that that might have been the trend anyway but i would imagine these types of um, blunt instrument uh, mandates would would hasten that. Um, okay, and then uh, you talk about Emily. Also, just we'll we'll wrap this up pretty soon. But the effect, especially on border areas, so where Washington borders, say Idaho, um, or. Oregon in the more rural areas, not so, maybe not so much with Portland because Portland also has um, has mandates such as this, but uh, but other areas along the Oregon border. Um, yeah, I mean, if as far as this increases employment costs in Washington State, it will make employment look much more attractive in neighboring locations where it might be easy for a business to relocate or to or just um, I mean a business. A potential entrepreneur might be thinking about where they want to locate, and this might price them out of Washington, but they'd be fine in in Idaho. So we'd lose that business to Idaho potentially. Yeah, um, and we often talk about the border effects in 
employment policies like this, especially, you know, the Vancouver, Portland area. But as you mentioned, Oregon's new minimum wage law actually makes that a little less of an issue, I think. Okay. Because it would be about the same. Okay. Here. Okay. All right. Um, so, uh, in closing, um, just thoughts on, you know, this, this debate sort of brings up um, a debate that's happening nationally about um, what, what, what is the correct response to um, sort of helping uh, pe- raise people's wages, um, helping uh, people feel more secure. You know, there's a lot of economic insecurity. You, you talk about, inc- you know, there's a debate about income inequality and um, uh, wage stagnation. And so, th- uh, this here, a microcosm in Washington State, it's sort of the debate between, well, do you focus more on these government mandates or do you focus more on creating economic economic growth that will help everybody and help create more job opportunities for people so that they're not stuck in minimum wage laws? Um, what, are you, what are your guys' thoughts? Emily? Well, the the American Enterprise Institute and the Brookings Institution kind of got together and did this big paper on poverty. And one of the things right. that they concluded was that getting people working is one of the best things you can do. Mm-hmm. So if you make jobs more expensive to provide, then you're just going to have less of them. Um, so I think that the, the important thing is to get people into jobs and then and grow the economy from there. Right. And even, you know, even if you did have some, obviously, you know, uh, you look at the polling, um, raising the minimum wage is really popular. So the the people who are promoting it certainly have that on their side. But, you know, even if you did, uh, if there were some compromise, collaboration on this type of thing, uh, this type of law, minimum wage, paid sick leave, something that were, as we've been saying throughout this podcast, and Emily, as you point out in your paper, something that at least uh, recognized um, different parts of the state, different economic conditions, different sizes of firms, you know, firms that employ hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people versus, uh, you know, a little shop that employs five or ten people. Um, Chris, what are, what are your thoughts about this whole, you know, this debate of, um, of how we help workers? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a tough thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I th- think the, the, the minimum wage is just a very crude tool to use on this. And it does mm-hmm. um, as much harm as good, if not mm-hmm. more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, I think, the worrisome thing is, is, is something that you had, uh, had mentioned uh, just a, a few minutes ago. Um, it really, um, long run... We need people to, to, to get jobs and progress right. in jobs. Yes. Uh, this uh, particularly hits hardest at the entry-level jobs. Exactly. And, and, um, and to the extent that we're, we're preventing people from getting that first job, um, we're doing long-term harm for um, short-term gain for a relatively small, small mm. number of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a sobering thought. Well, um, I suspect we're going to be, we will be talking more about this issue as time goes on, um, both because this is a, an initiative, uh, 
uh, before the state. We're talking about a major change in state policy, but also the broader the broader issue of um, of uh, you know the income inequality, worker rights. Um, wage stagnation, economic growth, all of that, and and how we address it, and because there are there are real differences out there on on how we do address it. Um, well, thank you, Emily and Chris. Um, we will uh, be posting, of course. Well, actually, the the this uh, this report is already on our website, researchcouncil.org. Um, we'll have a link to it in our in our podcast uh, uh, description, um, and also j- as a reminder, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are available not only on SoundCloud, but on iTunes, uh, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Just search for Washington Research Council, and again, our website is researchcouncil.org. Um, that's it for today for our Policy Today podcast. Thank you, Emily and Chris. Thank you to all of our listeners, and we'll talk to you next time. Policy Today is a production of the Washington Research Council, dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.